0: So how often do you have
1: to change the light bulb down here? So we change the light bulbs in here once a year in July. And there are three people it takes to do it. One stays at the top of the ladder outside and the other two come inside and act like contortionists and get (laughs) underneath because as you can see, uh, some of these edges are really hard to get around. And luckily some of the lights are on battens. You can unhook the batten, and you can pull the whole thing, change all the light bulbs and then put it back.
0: Is changing the light bulbs considered a plum job or the one that nobody wants to
1: do? <laughs> it's the one that no one wants to do. However, there's a lot of pride involved and they have all signed. <laughs> oh, cool. This have year... you signed it? You know, I haven't. I haven't. Yeah, I'm, I'm so worried about them all the time. I will one of these days. Okay.
0: You just climb back up out of the chandelier. You're huffing and puffing. I heard you say Jesus Christ a few times under your breath. How are yeah, you feeling? Yeah,
2: and a few other things. Uh, that was super fun. I'm glad I did it. It was amazing and incredible experience. I was terrified. I would go on a one through ten scale, ten being Sutro Tower, one being just like walking around in my backyard. That was a 6.5, like a 6.5, but uh, you know, my heart was racing. You just heard John Boatwright, the building steward of the War Memorial Opera House as we were embarking on our latest harrowing Total SF Tour, dropping into the iconic Opera House chandelier. Heather, I remain thrilled and terrified from this tour.
0: I remain only thrilled, not terrified. That was so much fun. We got to climb down one at a time because it's such a narrow spot. This very skinny little ladder down into the chandelier I can't believe, like, next time I go to the opera house and look up at the chandelier to think that I was sitting inside of it. It's super weird. But we saw how they changed the light bulbs, got a lot of interesting history about it. It was so much fun.
2: I don't look at any San Francisco landmark the same after doing all the things that we do on this podcast, and I hope our listeners feel the same way. I look at Sutro Tower, I look at the Orpheum, but the War Memorial Opera House was maybe a step above everything. Um, It was built in 1932, built for $4 million with municipal bonds. That's less than three Noe Valley toilets (laughs) in 2023 dollars. Uh, Arthur Brown Jr. who designed City Hall in the 1910s was one of the architects. It was the first publicly owned opera house in the United States. We've had a lot of amazing tours of iconic San Francisco places and buildings. I've gotta put this at the top. There's so much more to this building than you see at the opera.
0: Yeah, you would never guess sitting in the seats how much is stored backstage. All of the props, we saw fake swords, guns, a pig head, a crab, and this big box marked seafood. The prop master has a lot at her disposal.
2: It was amazing. Like, you turn every corner, every catwalk, every little nook and cranny is used space for the opera. It seemed like every time we turned a corner, there was some new random thing. Umbrellas, rotary telephones, swords, crossbows. And we had the best guides with prop master Lori Harrison and building steward Boatwright. They've been working there longer than we've been working at the Chronicle, and they were filled with stories. Lori and John are two people who would be very fun to run into at a party. And I also thought they were very encouraging and tolerating of the fact that neither of us have been to the opera.
0: (laughs) Yes, you would think that that would be a prerequisite for doing this episode, but it was not. But they did encourage us to come back, and we're very cool about our lack of knowledge of the opera. So I think we're going to go, right, Peter?
2: I can't wait. Uh, if nothing else, I'm just going to go to walk around that building again. But I think I'll watch the opera too, because the 100th season of the San Francisco Opera starts June 3rd. Madame Butterfly, Die Frau und Schatten, I hope I got that right, and Frida y Diego, about Diego Rivera and Frida Kah. Are all coming up soon. Uh, one correction we talk a lot of history in this episode, and I got some of the details wrong about Placido Domingo's legendary appearance. It was in 1983. And he flew in from New York to perform in Verdi's Otello. I'll post the full story on Twitter, but like I said, a lot of history in this episode. With
0: two great ghost stories, I'm more convinced than ever that the opera house is haunted.
2: Yes. We ask a lot of people on this podcast for ghost stories, and they often look a little shell-shocked. Sometimes they tell us one. Sometimes they fend it off. John Boatwright jumped right into some A-plus ghost stories. The War Memorial Opera House podcast is begging for a sequel, but there's a lot of great stuff in this episode. (laughs) I'm Peter Hartlob, here with Heather Knight and all of the Phantoms of the Opera, and this is Total SF.
0: John Boatwright and Lori Harrison, welcome to Total SF. Hi, thank
1: you. Thank you. you.
0: We just got an amazing tour of the San Francisco Opera House. We learned so much, and I think we explored every nook and cranny. Peter, what did you think?
2: I think this is the most amazing building in the city, and we have toured a lot of them. Um, You know, Transamerica Pyramid was really fascinating, and we've been in the Orpheum, and we've been in the Chronicle Building is a pretty cool building. Just one surprise after the other. Uh, thank you so much. It was an amazing tour, and uh, uh, I just, I'm just i still thinking about it, and my fear of heights were, were uh, properly um, stoked up, too.
0: <laughs> well, my favorite part was when we got to climb into the chandelier. John, tell us about the chandelier and what makes it so special.
1: Well, it's, it's pretty much the logo for the opera. Um, It's really beautiful. It was original to the building in 1932. It was the first use of aluminum as an architectural feature in the world. It has 600 100 watt light bulbs and 20 1500 watt light bulbs. And uh, it has its own air conditioning system to keep it from making noise from the metal expanding and contracting during the shows. And it's my favorite piece of the opera house uh, we change the light bulbs in it every year in July. It takes three people and uh, it's an adventure and all the folks that have done it in the past, they've all signed the, the air shaft that leads into it saying they were the crew that year.
0: And so tell me what a building steward does, when did you start this job and what are your responsibilities?
1: Um, well I work for the city and I make sure that the tenant companies, which are the opera and the ballet have what they need as best as possible, make sure that the equipment that's part of the building is maintained, it's an old building, 90 years old. And so there are issues. And since the building is always in use, it's difficult to shut a system down to properly, really deeply maintain it. So we have a lot of on the fly fixing. And because of the pandemic, getting parts for like the elevators here
0: Mm
1: -hmm. have become very, very problematic but we're slowly but surely getting through it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And the elevators, you know, the ones that we were riding in today, the the uh, cargo elevators, those have to be functioning or the crew, you know, the props and electrics and grips, they all have pieces up on the fly floors and we can get them down another way, which is l- tying them to pipes and lowering them in, but we really don't want to do Yay. that.
0: And Laura you showed us so many props and weapons and, seafood and baskets and lots and lots of umbrellas and handcuffs um, what goes into being a prop master and what's your day like on a normal day?
3: I I'm not sure there is a normal day. <laughs> it's a it's a job that uses art and uh, history and music and math and Literature and there's nothing that we don't use in the prop department to come up with the appropriate objects for uh, to tell a story, to be able to build, to know the materials. It's a it's a truly universal field. (laughs) And I think it's why I ended up in it, because if you can't make up your mind what you want to do, (laughs) I found something that uses all of it. I
2: I, I found the experience of walking around here, I felt like I was an ant in an anthill, because there really aren't windows, and you just don't know where you're going next, and you don't know where you are, but in in every piece of space, open space, seems to be used. I mean, we'd walk around a corner and there's a hundred umbrellas there, and then, you know, look to the left and there's rotary telephones from the 1930s. Laurie, do you know where everything is? I mean, do you in your head kind of have cataloged where you are in this place and where everything is? And follow-up question, do you ever get lost?
3: Um, I, I do get lost, but sometimes it's more or less because my attention is in so many places at once that I'll be looking for one thing and I'll see something and remember something else and start wandering around there are props that I've had to find in the past that when I see them at a flea market now I'm like oh I needed that for <laughs> in, in 2000 for some show I
2: walking around I was stunned I mean there is some new stuff there's you know high def cameras there's some new machinery to to lower props and stuff but it seemed like there was a lot of stuff here that is original. I, I, asking both of you, like, how much is stock? I mean, like, are there things from 90 years ago, pieces of machinery that are in operation right now
1: and, and being used? Um, well, the pit lifts, the orchestra pit lifts, those are original equipment. Those motors were all refurbished back in the 90s. Um, I, I showed you guys the thunder machine and the wind machine. That'll be refurbished in a few months. There are lifts, I guess they call it the, um, the drop well, which is upstage under the stage, where it's a big elevator that goes down and once you start going down, you can see on either side of you, these shelves that you can put pipes and long skinny pieces of scenery on. That's all original equipment that still
2: works. I saw, I saw what looked like a boiler from before the
1: 1930s yeah. when we went in the, the sub-basement. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's older equipment. I don't know exactly where it came from, but it was put in the Veterans Building because it was still new back then. <sighs> they're in beautiful shape. They just refurbished everything. Yeah. Well, I, uh,
2: I dig around in our archive and um, was looking up opera as it's been covered in the Chronicle. I was super excited because I found so many things and Joshua Cosman tipped me off to a couple of them. I found our first review and it really makes me think that this was an opera town from early on, the more I read about it. The first Chronicle review of an opera performance was in 1869. It was the um, uh, written without a byline and it was one of the first examples of any arts criticism in Chronicle history. The Brignoli troupe came to the California theater, and uh, I'm gonna read a quote here. A critical audience, large as to numbers, and containing the usual amount of imbeciles <laughs> who insist on applauding at the wrong time was present at the California theater last evening to listen to the first concert of the Brignoli troupe. We lack the space for more than a general mention of the crowd and performers. Of the first, we can say that it was somewhat tedious. Of the latter, <laughs> that they succeeded in disappointing us. Brutal wow. chronicle.
0: first <laughs> <Like, That laughs> review. Uh, Why are you yeah. reviewing the audience?
2: <laughs> yeah, so that was tough. Um, but Chronicle loved opera, and then opera seemed to love love San Francisco. I the Luisa Tetrazzini. I mean, we could do a whole episode about 1910. One of, if not the greatest soprano in the world, is in a fight with her New York management. It's right after the 1906 earthquake when we're rebuilding, dying to be a world-class city again, and she performs uh, from a balcony at Market and Kearney for 250,000 people. I'm going to read the 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 Chronicle coverage, it's a little bit kinder. (laughs) Last night, under the torch-like stars of a California sky with the monolithic buildings of Market Street for acoustic boards, she sang to the kings of the West and to their queens. When Tetrazzini was singing, there was no sound other than her voice except the faraway clang of a streetcar bell or the rumbling roll of a hurrying wagon. All the words coined and used at the confusion of tongues would not describe the silence in which the multitude listened to the gurgle of melody that rippled from Tetrazzini's throat. And she was quoted in the Chronicle saying, I never thought I would be a street singer, but I want to do this for San Francisco because I like San Francisco better than any other city in the world. San Francisco is my country. This meant so much to the city back then. And not, you know, within, within a generation of that, they're building the San Francisco Opera. Uh, Gaetano Marola. Right, very Did good. Did I get that right? Thank you. Did a few concerts at Stanford and then came here for what was the official opening a hundred years ago this year. And just much wonderment since. I could name a lot of things. I'll mention one that I don't think either of you were here for, but Placido Domingo uh, coming at the last minute and performing Carmen after getting off a plane when there was, I think, a laryngitis situation, and that's its own episode two. Oh,
1: that's a bigger story. Yeah. <laughs> it, um, it was an opening night. Jeffrey, correct me if I get any of this wrong. It was 81, and who was it supposed to be? Carlo
3: Casuda.
1: And he, didn't, he wasn't able to go on that day at the last minute. And so one of the board members sent their jet to New York because Domingo said he'd do it. So the audience just was sitting there in their seats drinking champagne. And he went on at like 10 o'clock at night. And, and there was like standing ovation for a very long time where they had to sit everyone back down so they'd get the show started. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Placido Domingo. He used to do concerts here too. And he would come up and do a concert to help raise money for the opera. Yeah.
2: So much history here. Are you... You know, do you think about it? Or are you in a little bit of awe of it, like we are right now?
1: Well, you know, I, aside from the opera and the ballet, that this building was used to hold the meetings, to form the United Nations, and that the charter was signed next door, but the, the treaty that officially ended World War II was signed on the stage here. Wow. And there's a plaque for it out in the hallway which people, um, we get tourists from Japan that come and they go to the stage door and they don't speak English very well, but they can get out enough that they just want to see that plaque. And so I will go get them from the stage door and bring them around so they can take their picture next to it. It's happened a whole bunch of times too.
0: You know it's a big building when that's a like side note
1: too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Side note, the end of World War II. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Lori, you walk around here. I mean, I was just seeing writing on the walls and everything. Do you just still discover new things?
3: Always. Always. There's always something that I haven't seen before. The, the, the graffiti um, the graffiti tells a story of its own just because of generations of people that have worked here. And, you know, everybody has someone that helped them get started and even those people who had other people that helped them get started and so there's this uh, tradition, just a a personnel tradition that just breathes in the walls here. Mm -hmm. Not just the performers, but also the the stagehands.
2: We'll be right back after this short break. So we ask this question, anytime we go in an old building, is this place we're sitting in right now
1: haunted? And I would have to say yes. <laughs> Up in the attic, where the follow spots are, there are four follow spots, and at night, one follow spot operator always has to stay behind to cool them. So at 11 o'clock, 11.30, 12 o'clock at night, there's one person sitting in the attic waiting for the follow spots to cool. On this one occasion, back in 95, the operator had shut everything down, and as he was walking out through the, the attic, he saw off in the distance, one of the stagehands waiting in the dark to surprise him, because we like to play practical jokes on each other. So as he got closer, he would say, I'm, I see you, I see you there, just come out, I see you. And he wasn't getting any response. And then he got within 20 feet, and he realized that the stagehand, he thought, was not really looking at him, but was just sort of facing towards him, and that he could kind of see through it. And the only way out was to walk past this figure. So he just kept going with his eyes averted, and as he got close to it, he felt what he said were fingers stroke the back of his neck. And He turned and there was nothing there. He left and walked out and closed the door. We closed the opera house down a month later for the seismic retrofit. When we reopened, he didn't come back. (laughs) Um, During the uh, retrofit, I was told by one of my predecessors that the construction crew had found a small box that they said looked like human remains. And so as they were sealing up the walls in the attic, they just put the box in there and closed it in. And we haven't seen anything else up there since. There's the other time where the sound man, Don Rowell, was sitting up in the grand tier mixing position, and he saw Kurt Adler walk past him out to the center of the grand tier to a, watch the rehearsal. He was the
2: director the He time. was
1: the former, former general director, yeah. And um, after a moment, Don realized that Kurt had been dead for two months or so, and he turned really quickly to look, and just out of the corner of his eye, he swears he saw something, and then it was gone. I myself have never seen anything, but when I'm here alone, Time and again, I keep hearing what sounds like somebody striking a Zippo lighter, hearing the lid click open and then the shhh. And there's never anyone near me. I spend a lot of time here alone, especially during the pandemic. I was, I was still here. And I had a small crew that worked with me, but they were only here a couple of days a week. And I kept hearing the lighter over and over. Also, the, the, uh, they turn the heat on next door. The opera house is heated by steam. And so if the steam rushes into the pipes too quickly, it makes a thing called water hammer, which bangs really loud like a haunted house would have. And when you're alone in here, even if you know what it is, it, send, it makes the hair on your neck stand up. And uh, yeah. Do you think
0: the lighter is the sound of a phantom lighting his way through the
1: hall? <laughs> I hope it is. Yeah. And I would like to meet the phantom someday.
2: <laughs> I think it is. Let's This is, say it is. This is definitely the coolest building ever. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for those stories. Those are wonderful. The San Francisco Opera, is celebrating its 100th anniversary this year, just the third opera company in the country to achieve that landmark. Is that something you all are thinking about as you're going around and handling your business? Is that something that's a buzz in here, and uh, is that a point
3: of pride?
1: Oh, it's definitely a point of pride.
3: And it's definitely a buzz within the company. They're, they really are... Um, not only celebrating the first hundred years but really kind of concentrating a lot of what we're doing and planning on the next hundred years, on, on not just sitting on, you know, how proud we are, what we used to do, but, but really thinking about where we are in the world today and what are the next steps to keep, to keep this art form going
0: well, I know that the opera has produced a project called "Streaming the First Century" that has a lot of wonderful audio from the first hundred years. Do you, either of you, have a favorite moment um, or historical thing that's happened here in the past century?
3: Uh, so, so yes, the shows have stories. Um, we talked about Ulysses as a, as like the only show that, in my memory, that actually had things kind of go wrong. I mm-hmm. think that since then we've really we've managed those kinds of issues and we we are prepared for them maybe better i don't know um
0: you told us earlier about that but for listeners what happened what went wrong with ulysses oh
3: a lot of things went wrong the stage manager's (laughs) report is hilarious because it just mentions one thing after another that that went wrong the the 1932 lifts that are built into the stage system we were relying on them. We were actually using them the way that you would want to use, you know, scenery lifts. So there was scenery waiting to come up and they failed. So, and they were failing over the course of a couple of days. And so we'd come up with alternate ways to deal with it. And so all kinds of things that were in the basement waiting to come up on the lifts. When the lifts didn't work, we had an alternate plan to start from the wings But in the middle of the show, when they didn't work, it meant you know taking in the curtain and running upstairs with all this stuff and and having to kind of go to alternate plan B while the audience is out there waiting. (laughs) It's uh, that was that was the big one. But there were wardrobe malfunctions. There (laughs) were it was one after another.
1: Yeah, but you know, like. Ulysses getting his cape caught in the <coughs> in <laughs> the lift. Strangled. Yeah and then not, yeah and, and just very calmly undoing his cape and walking forward. Also that we had fog in that show and the set had a rake to it and it had a, a plastic or resin coating and when you the fog is very wet and when you shoot that on there, you make a ski ramp and people were slipping on that. And then like I said, also we were standing in, in the dark in the back inside the set when Ulysses goes to kill all the suitors at the end, and he starts shooting the arrows, and they started going through the set into where we were. Then no <laughs> one got hit, but it was pretty startling. I and, love
2: the part of showbiz, like you're talking about with the cape, where things go wrong, and then everybody just pulls it off anyway, you know.
1: Yeah, as long as the audience doesn't catch on that something's wrong, we did our job. Uh, Seems we did, like
0: they must have caught on to some of that.
1: Maybe, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> at least the cape part, but um, we did a, a version of Don Giovanni years ago, where at the end, when Don Giovanni is grabbed and brought down to hell, this trap opened, and it had a mirror on the underside, and there were a bunch of extras standing there writhing like in hell, with red light underneath, and we were supposed to shoot fog into there. Well, the fog machines that we had were these small ones that had like boiling water in them, and it had a basket that you'd put dry ice into, and you'd drop the basket in there, slowly. And then the fog would shoot out of the hose. Well, the one person that was running the one hose dropped the basket in, which makes the water react, and the hot water shot out of the hose. So the next thing you know, he's shooting all these extras <laughs> with almost boiling water, oh and they really reacted like they were in hell.
3: <laughs> I, I have to say that... The since those days, um, we've taken safety so much more seriously than we used to. Yeah. So that every show has a, a, you know, everything that could possibly go wrong, and then what you could do about it before we even go into rehearsals for it, before we even have the set up. Um,
2: you said you have a weapons choreographer.
3: We we have a fight choreographer. Yeah. And every time we have fighting on stage, or you know, even the not even just the handling of weapons, which is a, a, something in and of itself, um, but fighting with each other, just you know, using other sticks or or your hands, um, it's very very carefully choreographed, and they go through an awful lot of rehearsal, and then the rehearsals stick with the show until the closing night. So we have fight rehearsals at intermission for every time that someone grabs someone by the shoulder and throws them seemingly against a wall. Mm-hmm. They practice how to do that safely up until the final day. No, they're, they're, nothing is left to chance. Well,
0: tell us about the upcoming season. What are the highlights?
3: Uh, let's see, the rest of this summer has Die Frauen Schatten, which is what's being set up right now, Madame Butterfly is our opener for the summer season, and Frida and Diego, Frida y El Ultimo Sueño de Frida y Diego, um, which is about Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. Uh, Diego Rivera. Yes. Yeah. The, um, it's the first opera we've ever done in Spanish, which is extraordinary considering that we live in California. Um, and that's it's going to be a really, really interesting piece. Um, that's that's the rest of the centennial season, and then we'll start next season, next fall, which of course we're already starting to think about in terms of like where the set is, things coming in and going to the warehouse, and we're getting it's all. We're dealing with all of the next season at the same time that we're sort of dealing with this season. But I think every opera for me there are some moments, and they're not usually the most popular moments. They're not usually the most known moments, even. But once in a while, it's it's a few chords or or some musical moment that I stop whatever I'm doing, even if I'm mid-con. Excuse me, and I have to go out and hear it live on stage because it's, it's, it's a really special place to be when you're surrounded by um, some of the greatest music ever performed. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I um, have late in life done a lot of first for fine arts. I had never been to the symphony and then Joshua Kosman, my colleague, became my Beethoven mentor. <laughs> and kind of got me started on the classical music i went to my first symphony beethoven's ninth and had just an incredible time i have actually performed at my elementary school i was don jose and carmen and they brought the (laughs) sf opera guild out and we would tour to other schools and i would like do the acting and then the opera singers would sing behind me i have a photo (laughs) i have never been to the opera i am 52 years old and i have not been to the opera I think this is the year. Do you have some advice for people who might be listening and just want to try it out and don't know where to start? Because just walking around, I can tell this is a very accessible place, and I probably should have come 30 years ago. But <laughs> yeah. w- w- Better which, late than never. W- That's what's right. Your, what's your advice for Heather and I for... for uh...
0: I come here often for the ballet, let it be known.
1: And where do you sit, Heather?
0: Uh, sadly, not in the dress circle. Or what was the... <laughs> oh, it's the grand like, tier? The grand tier. Yeah. No, not That's there. That's pretty nice. <laughs> well...
1: If yeah, if one can do that, the grand tier is an awesome view, and the sound is amazing. If I were sitting out there, that's where I would actually like to sit.
0: Yeah. Well, I um, think you can probably sing it. You have probably some connections. <laughs> i got I, I know people.
1: Yeah.
2: Is there um, an opera this year I should start out with, or we should start? Well, out with?
3: Madame Butterfly is. It's it's. Uh, it's popular for a reason. It's really stunning music, and it's a it's a an extremely accessible story. Um, the only, I, I, so starting with Puccini's and Verdi's are, is certainly a, a you know, it's a, it's a good entry. Uh, Mozart, um, knowing sto- something that you're interested in, like if you're interested in art, something like Frida and Carlo it is Frida and Diego is something that can that you know something, a little bit of something about. Mm-hmm. I think it is worth knowing the story first, if you if you can, so that you don't have to be looking at supertitles all the time. You kind of get the idea. You let the music speak for it, but the supertitles are there so that you don't need to. Um, we're trying. When you say it seems like a really accessible place, it it is. Um, we're. Doing a lot more uh, outreach. I mean, like the for our Traviata last year, we had a Traviata encounter, which was essentially nothing but a building-wide party that started with the first act of Traviata. And for people that don't know opera, it's 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 a way to feel like you are a part of it. Um, music will do that even without. You having drinks served to you from someplace in the building. Um, but it, it kind of helps. We'll be doing that again for Elisir de More, which is another very accessible opera, very accessible story. It's about uh, the elixir of love. It's a love potion story. And it's funny. And who doesn't know something about that? Um, I, I, I'd have to say just start. Mm-hmm. Just, just go to one.
0: Yeah. Um, cool. Well,
2: we'll, we'll do. I'm ready. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for showing us around the building and taking the time to talk to us. We had sure. a great time.
2: Thanks. Nice to see you come again.
0: We will. We'll,
2: we'll be here soon. Thank you so much. That was amazing. I'll be thinking about it for a long time. Thank you.
3: Thank you. Sweet. Thank you for
2: listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Our music today is from the Sunset Shipwrecks, Castro organ player David Hegarty, and cable car bell ringing from eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by investing in a Digital Chronicle edition It's less expensive than you think at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Makes sense.